We're going to be going to Revelation. We're going uh break today from the book of Nehemiah since it's Christmas Eve and we want to kind of focus on Christmas themes. And something um, that I, just from some studying I was doing this week, I wish I would have started it a little bit earlier, but um, there are many, uh, what we would call Christmas prophecies today that are from the Old Testament, that in reality, uh, a deep dive in these things, and if you take a historical look at these prophecies too, it shows um, a very different eschatology that they used to have back in the day before dispensationalism. And um, there's a lot of stuff that I think uh, our generation is missing from the Christmas prophecies because of just kind of all this bad doctrine that's come in, in the last 120, 130 years or so. And so there's a lot of the things that we've been teaching here that we understand, a lot of these things can be proven and we can relate to them in the Christmas prophecies. And we even see them in the Christmas songs too. It's clear that the Christmas song writers, that not only did they understand a lot about the prophecies of the first coming, but they had a very different understanding on the prophecies of the second coming as well. And I think they had a lot more things right than we give them credit for. And we're going to look at a couple of these things today, but I wish I had started this study earlier so I could have uh, had some prepared for the My Spirit of Prophecy podcast during Christmas week. So I'm going to, I'll probably save some of these for next year and just kind of look at Christmas prophecies, how they tie into things concerning the second uh, coming. But um, for Sunday school this morning and then also for our candlelight service tonight, uh, we're going to look at lines from a couple Christmas songs that shows too just, um, you know, those old songs, these, these Christmas hymns that we sing, they have so much doctrine in them. And when you look at the the lines of those songs that are taken from the scriptures, and then you look at the way the song is written, it's very clear that these people had a much deeper understanding of prophecy, of the scripture, and even of salvation than many people in and many Baptist churches today. It, it really is sad how shallow we have gotten in our doctrine. And that shallowness has made it so a lot of false doctrine has been able to creep in uh, to even good Baptist churches and I think we need to get back to digging a little deeper in our study of the Scriptures. But let's go to Revelation chapter 3. A lot of times we do, we like to focus on that bottom shelf stuff. But, you know, there's a lot more in the Scripture. We want to uh, be willing to do the work and know as much as we can about these things. But in Revelation 3, 7, it says, And unto the angel and the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works, and behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast had a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold, uh, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. 
And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So notice in this, uh, what Jesus is speaking here to the church in Philadelphia, he refers to himself as he that hath the key of David. Now in the Christmas song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that's one of the verses where it says, O come, thou key of David, come. So what is that key of David? Why did Jesus refer to himself as he that hath the key of David? What is the significance of that phrase? And it's clear that if you look in your hymn book, in fact, go ahead and let's uh, turn in your hymn books right now. Uh, I understand hymn books are not Bible, but uh, look at what it says in verse uh, chapter or chapter 77 i sound like i am reading from the bible right now hymn 77 in the last verse it says oh come thou key of david come and open wide our heavenly home make safe the way that leads on high and show the path that brings us nigh when you look at when we do a study of this key of david and then you go back and you look at that song it is very clear that the writer of this song understood what the what a key of David was. And according to this hymn right here, it says it's a Latin hymn from the 12th century. So this is old. This is, a, this is an old hymn right here. And, and so I want us to make sure we get the significance of that phrase because he referred to himself as he that is holy. We get that. He referred to himself as he that is true. We also get this. But when he said, he that hath the key of David... He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. What does this mean? So verse 8, again, he said, uh, so, because it, it, it has a meaning. After he says, he that shutteth, and no man openeth, and all that, he says, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. We're familiar with that verse here in this church. But did you know there's people out there that will tell you that uh, the synagogue of Satan is not who we would say it is, people who are Jews because of course they're Jews. Why? Because of their genetics. Well, how do you know that their genetics? Because they say that it's that they say it that they say they're Jews. I've, I've heard people say that the synagogue of Satan are replacement theology people because they think that they are the true Jews. You know, even, I mean, it's not like we, you know, the Bible says he is not a Jew that is one outwardly, but he is a Jew that is one inwardly. But anyway, you know, forget about that. But either way that they'll say that, but, what what does this mean? Okay, I, I think we're I think we're going to get this as we go through. What does it mean too when Jesus said he shall go no uh, no more out? Okay, look at look. Uh, let's go ahead and read this again. Uh, let's look at verse ten or verse twelve. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God which is new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So what does that mean? You know what I, I think it means? I think I'm going to prove this to you. I think it means we will never be, never be removed from God's temple. That's what it means. I think that's an eternal security verse right there when he said that. So verse 13, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Is there something in the Scriptures that can shed light on this passage in the meaning of the key of David? And I think without a doubt, when Jesus made that statement, he wasn't making a statement like just and not that, you know, that they wouldn't understand. OK, 
Okay, if he was going to give himself a new title, or uh, then wouldn't he you know, make sense that he would say something to explain what that title was? But the reality is, he isn't giving himself a new title here. He's revealing that he is the fulfillment of a prophecy. He is someone that the Bible spoke about. This is in Isaiah chapter 22. Go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 22. We're going to look at a, at a prophecy about Eliakim, by the way, who was, uh, uh, who was a servant of the house of God. But I believe this, we're going to see that this prophecy was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, or you could say Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy here. But before we go into this passage, I do want to say the key of David part is pretty clear, but I'm going to also throw out another possibility on how this prophecy can be interpreted. So look what it says in Isaiah 22, 15. It says, Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna, which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here, and whom hast thou here, that thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock. So notice a phrase about a sepulcher hewed out of rock. Can anybody think of somebody really famous who had a sepulcher hewed out of rock? What? Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus did. Okay. So think about that. You know, could this be a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ's death? Whose body would be put in a tomb? Hewn out of rock? One that he would borrow? But it says in verse 17, Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. There shalt thou die. And there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station and from thy state. Shall he pull thee down? Now, when you're reading this prophecy, without a doubt, this is primarily about what God is going to do with Israel in their captivity. So understand, Isaiah, when Isaiah comes along and he's doing his prophecies, this is before, the, this is when the Assyrians were about to come and conquer the land of Israel and Judah. Now, in the story, Judah repents and God uh, protects them from the Assyrians, but judgment has already been pronounced. And so while it didn't come in their day, it did come later by the Babylonians, but the northern kingdom got there. So Isaiah is full of prophecies about coming judgment from the Assyrians on the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's just the southern kingdom didn't get theirs until later because they had repented. But they did eventually get what was coming to them. But it was also prophesied that God would restore them to the land. Now, when dispensationalists read these passages, they act like these things are still yet to be fulfilled. It's like, no, these things already were fulfilled. They were fulfilled in Ezra and Nehemiah when they were restored back to the land. Okay? But because there was not this glorious outcome in the restoration, because Israel was still sinful, Israel still didn't learn their lesson, because they don't see this glorious outcome they assume all of these things must happen to this nation again. That is false. Okay? And, le- and, I, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but here's how you need to look at Old Testament prophecy. The prophecies about the restoration of Israel, they were in a way, they were directed at the generation that was going to go into captivity. It was also prophesied they would be returned to the land. 
they were returned to the land in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, the glorious things did not take place, again, because of Israel's sin. So there will be a fulfillment of those things in the future, but it's not going to happen through a physical nation. It happens through Jesus. All the things that God kind of put Israel through, you could say Jesus is going to be put through instead because Israel being put through those things did not fix them. But Jesus being put through all of those things on their behalf, the outcome of Jesus Christ, it was sufficient. It was good enough. And so these things are fulfilled through Jesus. So uh, I wish I had more time to spend on this. But again, these prophecies, as Isaiah is speaking, if you're Israel in that day, you're thinking about these things about yourself as a nation. Okay? And it's okay to do that. And so verse 22 says, And the key of the house of David, the key of the house of David, will I lay upon his shoulder, talking about uh, Hilkiah instead of Shebna. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Is this about Hilkiah or is this about Jesus? Well, obviously it was originally directed to Hilkiah, but did Hilkiah fulfill this? No. Guess who did fulfill it? Jesus did. And proof of that is what we see in Revelation 3. It's like, I'm he, I'm he that has the key of David. Okay? Well, it's not Hilkiah. Hilkiah didn't get it done. Jesus got it done. But understand, people aren't getting that because they don't even understand what it means to have the key of David. They don't understand what this phrase means. I'm he that, you know, he that shuts and no man openeth. Or we're gonna, when we, once we understand what that means, not only will we get this prophecy, we'll understand exactly what Jesus will say, is saying. But you know what? While the songwriter of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel back in the 12th century understood what it meant, people today don't know what it means. You know why? Because it will mess up their dispensational theology. But it doesn't mess with our theology at all. So, we'll, so we're going we're to look at this. So verse 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house. The offspring and the issue. All vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups. Even to all the vessels of flagons. And that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. And so it is clear from this prophecy that the key of the house of David being on his shoulder was a picture of authority. Okay? And again, this was directed at Hilkiah. But just like um, there's the prophecy that everyone would agree is about, I think it's Tyrus, uh, a king. I think his name's Tyrus. It's, escape me at the moment but everybody understands yeah but that was actually about lucifer right that was about that's about satan that's about the devil here while we're seeing a prophecy about hilkiah jesus will be the fulfillment of that and so um that is often done in prophecy in fact you know the prophecy of tyrus that was in uh isaiah too by the way so jesus is the fulfillment of this but the key being on his shoulder was a picture of authority someone and we need to kind of put our minds in a mindset back then, because that's who this prophecy was directed to. Things are obviously a little different now, but typically someone who holds the key to a room or a building is the one who is in authority. Okay, that's that's what that symbolizes. That key is the symbol of authority, just like Jesus has the keys of death and of hell. What does that mean? He has authority over it. It shows that he is the boss. 
And so I believe this prophecy about Hilkiah was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do with Jesus Christ. Now, where I'm not 100% certain, sure, but I'm leaning more and more towards this, is the idea that certain prophecies about what some would call a resurrection of Israel also finds their fulfillment in Christ. Because I've been looking into some of these prophecies that people are going to where they're saying this is proof Israel's going to come back as a nation. And I'm like, no, Jesus fulfilled that. We're going to see that. But look what it says in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, do you want to know what most uh, dispensationalists teach about this? They say after two days, it means days with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. And so... That's representative of a 2,000-year church age. And then God's going to go back to dealing with Israel again. That, that's what they say. So that's part of what they use to teach this coming revival of Israel. I personally think that this was also fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Because it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He laid on Him the iniquities of who? Of Israel. Obviously of us too. But that, that was prophesied also in Isaiah that he was going to lay on Jesus the iniquities of Israel. So instead of Israel being smitten and then being raised after two days, on the third day being raised, God did it to Jesus Christ. Jesus took Israel's punishment. Because you know what? If Israel would have died, they'd have just stayed dead. You know why? Because they deserved everything they got. Because they were sinful. And so Jesus took that for them. And so I believe that Hosea 6 is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Um, many people teach 1948 was fulfillment of that. Another thing I've been hearing people say, I've heard many people repeat this. I've been trying to find where this is in the Bible. I, and I can't, I, I think I found it. Okay, If somebody wants to correct me, they can correct me. But I've been hearing a lot of people talk about how in 1948, a nation was born in a day. 1948, a nation was born in a day. And that was prophesied that Israel would be born in a day. Okay. Uh, and, and nobody ever gives a scripture for it, but I think I found the scripture. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66 verse 7 says, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. This is verse 7. Now verse 8. Who hath heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Does that say a nation is going to be born in a day there? I mean, that, it's, it's not like they're quoting it, but it sounds like that could be what it's talking about. So shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. That ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. That ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck and become, and ye shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees as one whom his mother comforted so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye 
see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb and the hand of the Lord shall be shown, uh, shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his, his enemies. And folks, I think when a nation was born in a day was on December 25th, the year one. And I don't know that it was December 25th, but I'm just saying that's my way of saying, I think it happened at the birth of Christ. I think it was at the birth of Christ. And while people can disagree with me, back to the main subject about this key of David. Okay, this key, the reason this is important is because this, this key does in fact show authority over whatever the key is to. And so if the key is to the house of the Lord, Jesus is showing he is the one that has authority over it. Okay? Now, if you want to, if you want to, picture this in your mind too a good place where we can still see a picture similar to this day and i talked about this a while back in one of the sunday school hours the church of the holy sepulcher over in israel um there's like six churches that occupy that church and they for hundreds of years have not been able to agree who actually has authority over that church they can't agree so they've all just been kind of occupying and doing their thing for hundreds of years and if anybody varies from what they do big fights break out and we showed videos of those big fights and you might remember i was talking about how there is a man a muslim there is a muslim family that for hundreds of years has literally held the key to the church of the holy sepulcher none of them will concede that any other churches they're, they're not going to give them that because if, if you have the key you're kind of in charge and since none of those churches can agree what they've done is they've actually given the key or that authority to an outsider who has uh, had that responsibility in their family for hundreds of years of closing that door at night and locking it and then unlocking it and opening it, opening it in the morning. It, it's the Nasuba, if I'm saying that right, clan. But the Nasuba clan commonly spelled in English as uh, Nusabe is the oldest Muslim dynasty in Jerusalem. This family has a long history and tight bonds with the Holy Land and the Christian people of the Levant since the days of their forefathers conquering Jerusalem in the 7th century. Now, there's questions about whether or not they really go that far back, but they do claim to go back to the 7th century. Okay, I don't know. But according to tradition, this family took their name from a female companion, uh, I can't say half these names, of the Islamic prophet Muhammad, named Nusba bin Kaab. She was a member of the Ansar who transferred their political power over Medina to Muhammad. Uh, Nuseba fought along with Muhammad in the battle and was an early example of women taking leadership roles in Islam. Since the arrival of Islam in Jerusalem in the 7th century, the Sunni Muslim family has held the keys of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Christianity's holiest site, alongside the Joda al-Husseini family, who were added to the original arrangement in the time of Saladin, the Muslim conqueror who seized the holy city from the crusaders in 1187. This arrangement emerged during the days of the second caliph, Umar ibn, I can't say that, who hoped to avoid clashes among rival Christian sects for control over the church. Although symbolic, the arrangement has provided stability. The Christians of the city needed as the symbol of tolerance and interreligious harmony. And that's just dumb. They say that to make themselves feel good, but there is no harmony there at all. They all basically said, we would rather an outsider have the key to this place than one of all these other Christian sects. Because it is, it's a big pride thing, it's a big joke. But either way, 
When someone has the key to something, it does. It shows a power and it shows an authority. And so in this prophecy uh, to Elikim, they were going to him laying that key of David on him was basically showing a key to the house of the Lord. In other words, he controls who goes out and who comes in. That's what that's a picture of. And understand, Jesus now has the key to the house of the Lord. Jesus holding the key shows authority. Jesus holding the key of David shows authority to the throne of David. Okay? And what nation did David rule over? Israel. Jesus rules over Israel. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Stephen saw that. And, and understand, when Stephen said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, the Jews understood what that, the significance of that, what that meant, and it infuriated them to where they gnashed on him with their teeth, and they took him and they violently killed him as a result of what he said. And so what does, and so the key of David, what does it open? It opens the house of the Lord. And what does it say also in Revelation 22? In verse 14, it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, they may have right to the tree of life, and that they may enter into the gates of the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth the make of the lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you of these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst uh, come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And you, and you know what? What, the, what we're seeing here in the, in the beginning of Revelation, when we see Jesus one with the key of David, you know what we see at the end of Revelation? And also it says in Revelation 3, He openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. When we get to Revelation 22, it shows Jesus basically inviting whosoever to come. Now think about it. Before that, the law, it kept people out of the house of the Lord. There were tons of laws that would cause any of us to, to, that would keep us out of the house of the Lord. Jesus removed those things. Jesus now has authority over the house of God and he has opened that door. He has said, whosoever will may come where the law kept people closed off. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Did you know the Jews, they used to do everything they could to keep Gentiles out of the house of God? Do you all remember in the book of Acts when they just accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the house of the Lord? A riot broke out. You know why? Because when they had charge, they were keeping everybody out. Jesus told them, he's like, you know, he, he said, you're shutting up the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. You, they were, they, and you're not even going in yourselves. They were shutting people out. When Jesus came and he removed those things of the law, when he died on the cross, he opened the door. He has the key of David, the key to the house of God. And so even though the Jews, even to this day, still try to claim that they are the people of God, even though one of these days they're probably going to try to rebuild a temple, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to tell Gentiles they can't come in. They're going to say, this is the house of God. We have control. We have the keys. But you know what? God, is, Jesus Christ, is the one that has the key 
of David. They don't have the key of David. They're never getting back the key of David. Jesus has the key of David. So at the time you're without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and broke down the middle wall partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, and so making peace. And you all know this passage. We're not gonna we're not gonna read it all again. But understand, Jesus Christ removed all those things of the law, and you know what he's done? He has opened the door to the true house of God in heaven, and he has said, Whosoever will may come. He has the authority to do that because of what he did on the cross. And and whoever comes, whoever overcomes, and how do we overcome? by believing Jesus is a Christ, will be made a pillar in the house of God and will not be removed. That's what he said. And isn't it interesting too, at the end of uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on to explain how we are a part of that building that God built. Uh, It says, "...and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord." We're a part of that. And you know what? When God puts you in His temple, you're in His temple forever. You're a part of that building and He will not remove you from that. So Paul showed that we are a part of this one house. And just like Jesus said in Revelation 3.12, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my new name. And what is it we see later in Revelation? He said, when he sees new Jerusalem, he said, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And we have people today who want to argue about what the bride is. And some will say, well, we're the bride, right? As believers. They'll say, well, no, the bride's a city. Yeah, but the city is made up of believers. So, you know, both are true. It is the city, but it's also us as believers, we are we are a part of that bride. And so Jesus is the one who gave us access. And so guess what? The Jews can't keep us out. Luke eleven fifty two. Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye enter not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, ye hindered. So understand, the reason Jesus had to come and take that key from them, they weren't letting people in to the kingdom of God. They were shutting people out and they weren't even going in themselves. And so Jesus Christ came and he took all, he, he removed all those things. He took the key from them. He has the key and he has said, whosoever will let him come and take of the water life freely. And interestingly enough too, this is another thing they don't talk about today, but within that house of God, according to the scriptures, we know that where the temple was built, there was a spring of water, of living water is what they call it. Living water is, is what it, uh, a spring is living water. It's, it's water that just continuously flows, that continually, continuously comes. There was a spring of living water that came from that temple. And understand, only certain people could go into that temple. But Jesus Christ, he now has that key. He is the one that holds it. And he is invited, whosoever will, to come. Anyone who will believe on Christ, 
can now come in and be a part of that house of God. They can receive the living water, something that was within the house of God. That's something, that's something we can have. So let's go look at, look at the song book again. Song, song number 77. So when he says, Oh, come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Understand the reason we can go to heaven. The reason we can be a part of the house of God is because Jesus came. He took the key from the Jews that were keeping everybody out and they weren't even going in themselves and understand he went and he, you know, abolished all of the things of the law through his death on the cross. What was that? What did that mean? He paid for our sins on the cross, him paying for the sins, him, him dying. Him resurrecting from the dead. Him conquering sin out. He got the keys of death and hell. He got the keys to the house of God. He got the keys to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus Christ, he, you know what he did? He opened the door. And he said, whosoever will may come. It goes, the song goes on to say, make safe the way that leads on high and show the path that brings us nigh. And what is that path that brings us nigh? It's Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. For he is our peace who hath made both one. We who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of the lamb. It's very clear the writer of this song understood exactly who, who Jesus was and, and what he did for us on the cross. And so in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, let's look at this again. Now that we kind of understand that the key of David is it's a picture of authority him having that shows his authority over the house of God. He is in charge. He is the one who has access to the house of God because he, or he has the key. He's the one that opens the door. Therefore, he can decide who goes in. He has that. So it says, And the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and uh, no man openeth, I know thy works. I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. Jesus opened the door. That, and that is why we are able to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You know why? Because Jesus set, opened the door. He set before us an open door. We have, we have access. Have you ever wanted to get in somewhere and the door was locked and they wouldn't let you in? And it doesn't it stink too? When it's some weaselly little dude that, you know, thinks he's all the boss because he's, you know, because he's got the keys or something like that, you know, and we, we don't, we don't like that kind of thing. We don't like being shut out of something, but understand when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're not shut out. Jesus opened the door and anybody who doesn't go in, it's because they don't want to go in. It's because they are, they, they're, they're rejecting that invitation. He said, whosoever will come. And so all we have to do to come is just believe who he is. Just come. Do you want in? Do you want to be a part of this? Do you want to go to heaven? You can do that. Jesus opened the door. And then what's interesting, because people want to argue about who the synagogue of Satan is. Who were the people who did have the keys? Who were the people that were shutting that Jesus accused of shutting people out of the kingdom of God and weren't even going to themselves? Who was it? It was the Jews. Okay? It was the Jews. Who was it? What group of people got upset when they start when Jesus was reaching out to the outcasts, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? 
What group of people threw a huge fit when Gentiles started getting saved and these this sect of this Jewish sect that called themselves Christians started fellowshipping with Gentiles? Who threw a fit? The Jews. Okay? And who was it that claimed to be over everyone else? Who claimed they were the ones that were going to be inheriting the earth and all these things? Who who were the ones that were claiming to have all these promises coming to them who claimed to love God while rejecting the Son. Who was that? It was, it was the Jews. All right, we can say that here. And so, what does Jesus say after he tells these people who he is and how I open the door and no man can shut it? He said, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Listen, that sounds kind of anti-Semitic to some people, but that was Jesus speaking right there. Those are the words of Jesus. He's like, I'm going to make them. They're going to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. And without a doubt, the people he's referring to there are the whosoever. It's the, it's the people who were excluded by the law, but Jesus Christ remove those things through his death on the cross. And so there's no doubt who the synagogue of Satan was that Jesus referred to. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt who has the key of David. What that means is Jesus Christ. He has authority. He opened the door. Whosoever will may come and thank God for that. So with that, let's pray dear Lord. Thank you so much for this wonderful passage of scripture. And Lord, we thank you for uh, opening the door wide for us. And we thank you, Lord, that once we come in uh you'll never cast us out we're we're thankful for that and so we can uh, have that security and joy of knowing we're going to be with you in heaven someday we thank you for it pray a blessed service coming up in the next hour in your name we pray amen